The software supply chain consists of packages, imports, dependencies, containers, and APIs. These different components each have unique security risks. To ensure the security of the software supply chain, many developers use tools to analyze and scan their infrastructure for vulnerabilities. Barack Shoster works at BridgeCrew, a DevSecOps cloud security platform. He joins the show to talk about the risks of the modern software supply chain and what his company does to alleviate it. Barack, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Not bad. I want to talk about a few subjects today. We've talked about BridgeCrew in the past, which is the infrastructure security platform that you've built. I guess to start off, I'd like to get an understanding for how BridgeCrew has evolved since we last spoke, and maybe you could just touch on what your focus is as a developer security platform. So since we last talked, BridgeCrew have created an extension to every step of the developer pipeline, uh, from having an IDE extension to CI plugin, pull request plugin, and runtime ability to scan infrastructure from code to cloud and identify misconfigs and drifts. And I think that over the past two years, the thing that we've learned and all of the market have evolved is that there are other risks in the software delivery uh, framework. We had, the market have, have seen attacks like the code cov attack, look for shell attack, and other attacks on, on companies that really change a few weekends for a few SREs out there. And we thought of how can we help those SREs and security practitioners to know about those risks upfront. So over time, BridgeCrew have added the ability to scan open source libraries for known vulnerabilities and open source images, and now also scan the version control system configuration and the CICD configuration. So I think that all of that is tied into how we define uh, the supply chain of code. And I don't know how how deep you want me to go with it, but there are many aspects of it that we discovered that we should inspect and fix in our code. When you talk about the supply chain of code, give an overview for what that means to you. So the the term supply chain was coined on all manufacturers of cars at the beginning. And a car is being built from an engine, a bunch of electric, electricity products, some gas. And the thing that builds it is the pipeline to build the car and the people who is assembling all of the different parts. And you can think about software as a similar piece. You have the CI pipeline. You have the full-stack developers who takes different building blocks from the open source, whether it is Docker images or, or open source packages. You have the infrastructure teams writing infrastructure code. You have the operation teams maintaining the runtime environment. And everybody are tasked with assembling the thing that we call an application software. So when we talk about supply chain we talk about all of those different pieces and the security of each part. Let's take a few examples. The classic one that we've already talked about is security of the infrastructure code, which is the equivalent of your cloud security at runtime. Is your S3 bucket encrypted, not public? Is your application standing behind a, a WAF 
web application firewall and is it configured correctly? Then the second piece is, are you using a vulnerable Docker image for your containers? And what impact does the vulnerabilities within that Docker image has? Some of those vulnerabilities are coming from open source packages, for example, and vulnerable NPM packages. A few months ago, we had an open source maintainer getting pissed on fortune companies that are using Color.js, and he have decided that the model of open source and the compensation of open source maintainers is not fair in the world, and he decided to destruct some of the Color.js code base, and that led into destruction of the AWS CLI code base because there was a missing locking piece between the imports of open source packages. So open source packages is another vulnerability in your supply chain, but also the configuration of the pipeline itself. So another attack that was interesting on around June 2021 was an attack on CodeCov, a code coverage software. And the TLDR of it is that the attackers have somewhat exploited the process of how CodeCov is building Docker images. Uh, They use the script to modify the Docker image itself and use it to steal environment variables from all of the CI CD environments where CodeCov was deployed. So CodeCov is the most popular tool or one of the most popular tools for code coverage reports. You need to deploy it on a lot of your pipelines to get a, a sense of how good is your testing coverage. And it's very easy to install, very developer-friendly. And one of the images had a vulnerable piece that was injected from untrusted source that have leaked CI secrets like your AWS access keys, your admin credentials, whatever it is, to an unknown malicious actor. And one of the capabilities that we try to introduce also in our open source tool in in Chekhov by BridgeCrew is the ability to verify that not only your open source packages are not vulnerable and that your infrastructure's code is not misconfigured, but also identify if your version control system is defined correctly. For example, all of the commits are signed. You have a, a code review process with a mandatory approvers and you have SSO, you you know to identify the code contributors and also that your workflow does not use secrets in every context and those secrets are only being used when necessary. So the goal is to have a full software delivery pipeline from open source packages to infra to the pipelines themselves. That is, you have trust in and it, that it is really hard to inject malicious actors into it. So you outlined a lot of different attack vectors there. How do you insulate against the wide variety of attack vectors that could present themselves? So the main risk to software delivery pipelines is people. And the main solution to those delivery pipelines is people. And the best thing that you can do is give all of those different engineers the power and the knowledge to understand that if they've done a mistake, to fix it very early on. So the thing that we highly recommend is to have something across 
the different delivery interfaces, whether it is your JetBrains ID or VS Code or your GitHub Action, and have something to lint your code, whether it is workflows files or, or anything else, and understand if you're putting your company at risk. If as an individual, you understand that very early on, you can save your company a lot of headache. And the other way to do it is to introduce an investigation process where not as an individual who is coding a specific feature, but as a maybe a security practitioner that overlooks the entire company's activity, to have an investigation tool that will provide you the insights to inspect every step of this pipeline from the open source capabilities, images, code deliveries, and version control system configuration. Is there one particular domain that you see attacks occur in the most, like a category? Like, I don't know if it's through people pulling in bad dependencies in NPM or using some insecure container image. Is there anything in particular that you see as the most vulnerable part of the of the software supply chain? I think that one of the common attacks is is crypto mining. A lot of actors are trying to utilize different steps of your software delivery pipeline to inject a crypto miner. So one thing that was prevented about a year ago was the ability to run a GitHub action by any external contributor to a public repository, which led to running crypto miners on the expense of the repository owners. GitHub blocked that capability or made it harder, not completely blocked, but people are still trying to find ways to do that. Another way to do that is to inject a crypto miner to the init script of an NPM install or of a Python package install. Uh, So the setup phase can be vulnerable. And also injecting malicious code to Docker images that are not signed. So having having unsigned and unverified workflows can lead to those activities. But the worst activities are people stealing code and secrets from your pipelines. And I think the most popular ones is crypto mining attempts on your pipeline. But the most risky ones are just data leakage of codes and secrets because if a bad actor have your code and have your admin credentials to, to deploy to a production environment, they potentially put off your customers. If you're a vendor or for, if you're a service provider, it puts off your customers at risk and your customers' data. I think that that's one of the things that we've saw with an attack on a vendor named SolarWinds. So SolarWinds is a vendor on the application monitoring space uh, that was attacked by a very sophisticated actor that have injected malicious code that can leak data from SolarWinds customers' base. So different ways of injecting bad code. CodeCov have had a bad code in their built image. SolarWinds have had bad code in their application code. And all of us, most of the companies are using either open source tools or third-party providers to build their software. And almost every every company is a software company nowadays. I know that we use in Palo Alto Networks in more than 160 different SaaS vendors 
from CI system, version control system to even our billing system. It's like everybody are using Salesforce and everybody are using PagerDuty, Datadog. You have all of those third-party providers that makes you more productive in your day-to-day and you should use them, but it does put some of your security at risk if those vendors are not having some best practices in place on their code supply chain. So have there been any other instances of a SaaS provider getting a crypto jacking system injected? I mean, I can imagine if, you know, if something like Salesforce had a crypto jacker in it and it got deployed to every single Salesforce instance that people were running, that would be very pernicious. I don't think that's ever happened, but are there any other large-scale supply chain vulnerabilities that you can use as examples? So CodeCov was the first on 2021. Then there was SolarWinds. There was also an attack on Kaseya. All of those are SaaS tools, service providers. I think that the CodeCov is the most interesting ones because it could have been both CodeCov and SolarWinds could have been easily prevented by the best practices we should all use have make sure that you don't persist your Git secrets to any public repository, like scan your code that it doesn't have any secrets before committing it. Make sure that you have code review process and make sure that your images are signed. And each one of those should be a relatively small effort from your DevOps team. And I know that every SaaS company have customers on their head and they have production environments burning. And like it's hard, it's hard to be a software engineer in the large-scale growth company that is a SaaS provider. And having said that, to have the minimal best practices in place can be a good place to start with. And it's not, it's not that hard. It's not a lot of effort. Now it's it's easy for me to judge in retrospect, and I don't fully blame CodeCov because there was not a huge awareness of the risks back then, and I'm sure that everybody are doing mistakes. Like every engineer is breaking production at some point. Every engineer is creating a a hole in the security posture. But if you have the right tools, skills, education, team, and culture, you can encourage conversation about it and you can encourage the usage of open source tools and some minimal best practices to make sure that uh, your code delivery is is as secured as you'd like it to be and i think that one of the efforts of the other efforts that we're seeing in the open source community is a project called OpenSSF that was created originally by google and a new compliance framework named Salsa, SLSA, that tries to define what is the bare minimum of best practices you should have on your delivery pipeline. Having approvers, having signed commits, having signed images, not using plain text secrets, having branch protection rules, not allowing first commits. It's a best practice that you'll have just to have better collaboration as a team. But you also need that to have a secure software delivery pipeline and making sure that nobody force pushes a malicious code. 
So having those centralized set of rules really helps every security or every engineering team to, to be more mature. So as a company, we help other companies make sure that those rules exist, but there are other open source tools outside of our open source named Chekhov that are also helping to drive people into that space. And, and I think it's, it's not a heavy lift and you should always start doing that at some point. Do you pay any attention to the, the cryptocurrency world outside of just the crypto jacking vulnerabilities? Have you looked at all into, I mean, this obviously not the, not exactly the domain of traditional infrastructure protection, but have you thought about crypto security at cryptocurrency security at all as a domain to get into? Maybe on my next venture, but no, I haven't done any research on secure wallets or secure transactions and fraud. It's an interesting space. I'm currently only trying to help people prevent crypto jacking attacks. Gotcha. So when you're working on Bridge Crew and you're looking at the different domains of the software supply chain, you've got just running containers, container image security, GitHub security, and then you've got dependency injection issues. What are the places in the in the tools you build into bridge crew to alleviate those different domains of supply chain insecurity i think that each of those categories that you've mentioned have their own supply chain risks for example in infrastructure as code you can use an open source module that can run arbitrary code in terraform you have the data external block that you can run arbitrary code on and you on terraform when you import a module even if you choose a specific version of a module, it's not immutable. People can create another commit on the same version and you'll import a new module without knowing that that might have bad code in it. And on package managers like NPM, you can always try to import the latest code, hoping it will be the most secure. But as the attack on Color.js, that have occurred a couple of months ago, you might inject bad code from your the latest version of this open source package. The same can occur on image. You can pull the latest and the latest can have a vulnerability. There is also another attack that we haven't talked about, which is the log for shell attack. You can use an lo- old version of logger, like everybody is using a logger to log all of the incidents that is happening in the application. And this logger can lead to leakage of all of your data to an external source. And what we've seen in a lot of graph logs is that 24 hours after the attack was discovered on on Log4Shell is the amount of injection attempts to Log4Shell was skyrocketing in the entire internet. And the thing that you need to do is to really make sure that each of those mentioned domains is secured. Make sure your Terraform code does not enable running arbitrary code and has secured configuration for all the cloud resources. Make sure all of your packages, files from the different package managers, Maven, NPM, etc. One is using a lock file, and two, any locked package does not have at least a critical vulnerability. 
Three, make sure your CI pipeline runs in a segmented environment with segmented network, work against uh, an immutable code repository like AWS Code Artifact or JFrog Artifactory. So arbitrary code would, would not run software that will leak your code and secrets to an unknown IP. At worst, it will get into an internal IP like your Artifactory. And also inspect your runtime environment and may be sure that those risks does not arrive to your production. And, and you, should, you should act as if your CI CD pipeline is the equivalent of your production because usually your CD pipeline will have admin access to deploy software and multiple engineers will trigger it and will run this service account with admin access to deploy software. So you should scan and interact with each of those domains, each one of those with their own supply chain uh, threat models. How do you update your systems over time to be able to detect and mitigate new threats? So we are lucky enough to have a, both a good research team internally and an amazing open source community. And luckily, we have more than 200 contributors who are not Palo Alto Network employees just people out there from cool companies like Yelp, Airbnb, HashiCorp, AWS, Microsoft, contributing content, which is new detection capabilities. Some of the ideas to secure the CI pipeline came from uh, the Cloud Security Forum. It's a cloud security community I highly recommend to participate in. I learned a a lot from the practitioners there. And the idea to secure different steps of your workflows came from a discussion of pain points from practitioners in that domain. So we have open source users who are helping us to increase our coverage and capabilities. We're active in community forums and we have a research team that is researching always the next threats that we see in customers' environments. When you look out at the market, you know, there's there's a number of products or platforms that I see as similar to Bridge Crew. The most notable one is probably Sneak. Can you give me a, a sense of how you compare to Sneak or how you see them as a competitor or complementary? I think that each one of us have evolved from a different original space. Sneak have evolved from the application security space and now is driving into container security and infrastructure as code security. And BridgeTrue have evolved from infrastructure security, both in code and runtime, and now evolving to image scanning, workflow scanning, and also application security. So each company have started in a different domain originally and have a, a different focus. And in the end of it, I think that all of those companies, us, Sneak, and others included, are essentially trying to secure the internet and make it a safer place for for all of us. So I know some of the people at Sneak and they're doing blessed work. And I think that uh, we're trying to to do blessed work too uh, and succeeding. Can you tell me about the engineering of insulating against software supply chain issues? Like, give me a sense for the systems that you've built programming language choices, models for code scanning, like 
the architecture for how you solve these different problem domains. I'd like to just get into the engineering of of how you solve various software supply chain issues. So the basic of code security generally is to model code as graph objects, as nodal graph objects. The infrastructure as code piece is a directed acyclic graph. It's a graph that maps the dependencies between resources, for example, EC2s to their security groups, to their firewalls and networking configuration. And you need to do this mapping to understand, hey, is this resource public? I have an EC2, does the firewall expose it? And if the firewall expose it, is the subnet exposing it too? And the NAT gateways, are they exposing it too? And to what ports are they exposing it? Now you need to embed into that graph model a question, right? This, let's say that this asset is exposed. It's public. I have a public EC2. The configuration of the graph of all of the connected resources of networking and firewalls have made it public. But is it public and vulnerable? So to answer, is it public and vulnerable? You need to embed another data structure, which is a tree of all of your open source dependencies that mapped into your application bill of material or software bill of material. You take this software bill of material, you inject it into the graph and you can answer, hey, my server is public and vulnerable. But then you want to ask, is it public and vulnerable and have access to customer's data? So you can query your infrastructure as code directed a cyclic graph and ask, does it have a network path to the database? But you can also scan your CICD workflows and check if you have plain text secrets there or you have unsecured delivery pipeline. You don't enforce reviewers and people can inject bad code at any time into that server. So you have DAG for infrastructure as code. You have tree for open source vulnerabilities and also image vulnerabilities. You have a similar tree. And now you inject to it another graph which is mapping of the infrastructure deliveries to compute deliveries, applications, dockers, images, and map them into the workflow that delivers them into production. So the question that you can now ask is, do I have a misconfigured infrastructure that is vulnerable and deployed via unsecured delivery pipeline? And to answer all of those, you need good coverage of all of those assets. And you also need coverage into the runtime environment because let's say that you have that vulnerability. You also want, in order to prioritize, you want to ask, where is it deployed to? Is it deployed to a dev environment or a testing environment? Okay, I have time. I don't need to fix it right now. I can deprioritize it for now because my dev environment does not have any sensitive data. Is it deployed to a production environment? Yes, it is. All right. I should prioritize that because I put my company at risk. So the data model is a multi-layer graph, essentially. We built our own data structure to enable different queries of those layers. And behind the scene, it's, it's a data access layer that combines data from RDS and a persistent graph object that we persist into S3 buckets and we shard it between the different tenants of Bridge. 
I think that's where a lot of the intellectual property is. And the other thing that we do is we build graph of all of your runtime environment using uh, cloud security posture management capabilities where we scan your runtime environment. We build a graph and we map that graph into your code using tracing capabilities. So you said graph for container security? Is that right? Graph is for infrastructure. Graphs for infrastructure's code. Trees for for container security. Trees for container. Because you need a tree because let's say that you're using Spring, one of the most popular open source projects to, to bootstrap a Java application. Springs have another library that it depends on, which is Spring Spring Log. And Spring Log is dependent in Log4j. When you want to ask, am I vulnerable to a Log4j CVE called Log4Shell, you need to query the entire tree of dependencies of, hey, I'm dependent on Spring, which is dependent on Spring Log, which is dependent on Log4j, which is vulnerable. So you need a tree for that. And this tree is composed also into your Docker image whenever you run Docker build and you you bring in all of your open source packages into it. Gotcha. And how big do those dependency data structures get? Do they become prohibitively large? The largest that I've seen is a few millions of objects. It's because you you have a production environment and this production environment have millions of servers going up and down. And all of those servers have application deployed on them and all of those applications have open source packages deployed on them so it gets to be a few a few millions the largest i've seen is almost 100 million entities and we try at the beginning it was not it was not an easy scale challenge to solve but we managed to solve solve it using some of our capabilities that are implemented in a serverless framework and we also had a lot of work on sharding our data objects to enable fast queries on top of them. So you, when you say sharding your data objects, those are the data objects that you're building for your users, or those are the data structures that you're maintaining to understand the software supply chain on your side? Both. So let's say that our user have decided to connect a repository and the user wants to to know what are the best practices that they're using and what are the bad practices they're using in in code uh, across all of the supply chain. So when you connect a repository, we we build this, this graph. And the first thing that we did, instead of having a full update of that graph on every commit that you're doing, we're only updating the deltas of your code change. The second thing that we've done is we pre-calculated common queries. Like we pre-mapped what is a public object, what is an encrypted or unencrypted object, and what is an object that is traced from code to runtime. We we know how, how to identify the runtime objects connected to it. And then we solve uh, some of the scale issues by creating micrographs. Some of the entities had a lot of edges. Uh, for example, a database can have a lot of entities communicating with it. A Lambda function or a container might have a lot of instances. So we managed to create micrographs that can be queried when you investigate a small portion 
of the graph for security risks. And some of the user interface was built in a way that will enable you to paginate over the graph data structure in a way that is easy to search and explore the different vulnerabilities. So there, there has been a lot of engineering and product effort to analyze of the different investigation flows and that are common you know, of the different data structures that should be used in that investigation workflow. It's also worth to mention that we, the data that we have in order to create those models is, is enormous. We're connected. We are connected to a large number of repositories, which gave our data engineering team enough, enough prior knowledge to play with some A-B testing and see the results of how the data structure would look like and would we support that scale before exposing such capability to our customers. Can you tell me more about the backing databases or or just in-memory structures you used for representing those graphs and trees for the dependencies? So one of the most popular libraries or graph representation in Python is uh, NetworkX. So NetworkX is basically when you're exploring graph databases, you have three, three options. One is to try the AWS managed solution, AWS Neptune. And it was not a good fit for us. Maybe it is today, but at the beginning it wasn't. It didn't support all the queries that we wanted to execute and was not fast enough and did not hold the scale that we wanted in a reasonable pricing. It has changed. So AWS team have done some good work, but it was not enough for us. The second option that you have is to use uh, Spark with graphics. The third option is to use Neo4j, which has some licensing limitations or commercial aspects that you need to agree to. And the fourth option is to use a library like NetworkX to create those capabilities. Now, Bridgeway is an open source, open core company. Some of our graph logic is based on the open source project that we maintain, Chekhov. And we wanted the capability to persist some of that graph logic into the, the open source community base. So we chose NetworkX. And on our commercial offering, we created a Lambda-based architecture that enabled scaling network, network X uh, to analyze with its graph um, all of those different layers of supply chain. It's a purpose-built in-memory DB, if you'd like, for the purpose of supply chain security. Got it. And I guess I'd like to get a little bit more context for how you're actually using these data structures. So if, if I understand correctly, you have your own data structures and then you have the user's data structures and you're doing some kind of diffing between them to understand the dependencies? So we, when you mention user data structures, the thing that I mean by user data structure is we scan the user code right. and we build a common data structure on top. So if you write Terraform code, the data structure of Terraform is directed to cyclic graph. CloudFormation have a similar data structure directed to cyclic graph. Serverless have the same, and Kubernetes also have the same. You have dependencies between pods and services and service meshes. And in Terraform, you have dependencies between your 
EC2s to your security groups and to your EBS volumes. So you can say, you can ask a query, is my EC2 encrypted and not public? And then there is also a connection between your ECS Fargate or EKS Kubernetes cluster to your container images. All of those are doing references in code. In order to import an image, you're typing in your ECS task, image equals Alpine Python 3 or Alpine latest or Ubuntu latest. And you might use also a custom image. Let's say my app image and then the version number of it. So the connection between resources is mentioned in code. You have to describe it on the declarative language where you're writing your DevOps code. You can do hacky things like bash scripts, but over time it will not hold and then you will move into a declarative or or immutable or imperative model, but you always define these dependencies somehow. And if you if you haven't defined it in code, you, it's happening in runtime. Like your if you go into your AWS console, you see what image is being used on the ECS task. So the graph model is being built once you connect either a code or a cloud environment. So the user data structure is, or the user flow would be connected cloud and code repository, and we will build the data structure and the data model on top. And we will enable you to scan that data model with more than 1,000 built-in best practices. And you can run your own query, your own graph query to scan the different dependencies between resources. Okay, very cool. I'm glad we could cover some architecture there. So I guess to, to close off, since we've been talking about software supply chain most of the time, do you have any predictions about where the software supply chain vulnerabilities will come from in the near future? I hope that not only the attacks that we hear about in the news will be the driver, but also companies will want to increase their level of assurance using compliance frameworks like Salsa. And another driver can actually be the regulations around it. So two months ago, one month ago, DCF uh, called Facebook, Google, Apple to talk about the open source security risks. And we see the US government being more active in conversations on open source security. So I do hope that it will come both from the regulations and from practitioners in a bottom-up motion to make their pipeline more mature, uh, repeatable, reproducible, and to be something that we can trust because open source have done mostly good to the world from Linux to the different packages of NPM. And we all want it to keep doing that. And we all we are all enjoying that. And I think that it's more not a prediction, it's a hope that uh, each maintainer on their own domain will work to make their popular open source package or tool more secure. And, and by that, we'll keep the internet safe. Cool. Well, Barack, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, Jeffrey.